Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Sportland Training and Fitness Sports Talks Podcast, the people behind the posts. Now, constantly, over the last two or three years, all we've heard of is what people are doing in their day-to-day life, in the gym, in their business, and everyone's coming up pretty much with the same things. And you know what? I'm a little bit bored of that. So what I'm here to do is to find out the reasons why people are doing what they're doing. Find out what has scared them. Find out what's put them outside their comfort zone. Find out really what makes them tick, because that's where the magic happens. That's what's exciting, and that's what's gonna help you, and it's gonna help me push forward in our careers. And you know what? Just have a little bit of a conversation as well while we're at it, because at the end of the day, I listen to these in my car, I wanna be entertained. So maybe I can help entertain you. Hello and welcome to Sports Talks Podcast, the people behind the posts. I am your host, Sam Portland, professional strength and conditioning coach. Today, for the very first episode of this podcast, I am joined by a very good friend of mine, Keir Wenham Flat, aka the rugby strength coach, as you will find him on social media. Now, Just to give you a word of warning, there is some disruption in the audio just because we're Skyping from UK to Japan and uh, please bear with it because there are some serious nuggets on life, learning, professional development and some lifting. But given the nature of this podcast, we're here to talk about people and experiences rather than the posts and benching. So... That's it for me. First one up. I hope to see you or hear from you or tweet, like, share, whatever you wish for the next episode next week. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to the popping of the cherry of Sports Talks, the podcast, the people behind the post, those podcasts that you know nothing about, but you will learn everything about people from. So, Today, I have the ultimate wingman, Keir, when I'm flat, the rugby strength coach um, for episode one. Now, the reason why I got Keir on for the first episode was because he was the guy that gave me my break in the industry. So I, um, 2012, interviewed with Keir. Uh, for an uh, internship role in Wasp Academy and he was the one that gave me the okay so I thought it was only respectful to bring uh, bring him on and, um, and and do this show first so um, for those that don't know you care just give us a 10-15 second summary I will say you were half an hour late for that interview as well so you must have been good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who, who am I? I am a strength and conditioning coach I work in pro rugby in um, Tokyo and Japan for Toshiba in the top league. Um, I've had more clubs than Tiger Woods. I've worked for Argentina, Sydney Roosters, Rotherham Titans, London Wasps, London Scottish. And I did one week in China as well with Shandong Province Sevens. Also worked with some amateur teams. Uh, that is the, the day job. And then part-time, I run a website called Rugby Strength Coach, which is basically my response to everything that I find bad about the industry and rugby strength conditioning. Nice, nice. So good balance. It keeps me busy. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. You're a busy man. You're a busy man. So the general consensus about this um, podcast that we talked about is the tagline, people behind the post. So want to learn a lot about you as a coach and give you an opportunity to talk about those things but I want to talk about the things that influence you coaching and the things that make you up as a person that allow you to do your job very well um and my like we talked about my biggest gripe with a lot of the, these snc podcasts and people that come on they don't actually talk about the most important stuff they just talk about the numbers so we uh will dig into those bits and pieces so if um I'm going to fire away. Like, what do you what do you think is the the best personal trait of yours that allows you to do your job well? Uh, well, I mean, I had this. You want to talk about internships? My internship with Tappers, who you've worked with, yeah, 
Yeah. And he, he said it best to me because, well, you know, I've got a mouth for me. He said, he said, your best quality as a, as a coach and as a human being is also your worst quality because you lean on it to such a degree that it, it becomes a weakness. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm not a shrinking violet. <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah. I'll, I'll fucking speak my mind. If, if someone's been a pussy, I'll call them a pussy. If someone's pissing me off, I'll jump on it. And he, you know, at the time with the academy, he said, you, know, you, you cannot, you cannot call a 16 year old athlete a fucking pussy in front of his friends, <laughs> even if he is being a pussy, you know, and he, spot on, spot on from Taffers. And it's, you know, already going off a tangent, but it's, people will never remember um, what you say or, or what you did. They remember how you made them feel. And yeah. you, you catch a lot more flies of sugar than you do with shit. It's how you deliver the message is just as important as the message. So, I mean, Tappers was, was spot on then. And I, you know, I, I, I certainly acted on it. Um, and then, you know, it, it's a never ending process you're going to find someone else that pisses you off about yourself or that's a weakness and i'm i'm still trying to work on my weaknesses but the undoubtedly the thing that has probably helped me to to get to where i am is not not obsessive relentless like i if woe betide you if you reject me or turn me down because I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you fucking remember it. And I'm honestly, there's like a list in my head of people that I'm still working to, to prove wrong. And it, the the people who rejected me, um, I I can I've got a good memory. I can remember them. I can remember emailing them and say, well, why? You need please tell me what I need to do to get better. And then basically I go off and work work on it, just to, to prove them wrong. And occasionally yeah. it it it. Hap- it, it kind of pays off you know a mutual friend of ours said to me that his head coach said that the biggest regret of his coaching career was not hiring me so that's a small victory but i've, I've moved on I've, I've got other people to prove wrong now <laughs> yeah but I'll just you keep know, ticking them off you know like, like tapper said you, your biggest quality is a, as a coach that kind of relentless not good enough need to get better that is not a good quality if you want to be a content individual and have a good work-life balance and all that kind of shit. And yeah, yeah. Um, we, I'm not sure if you've met him, but you would, you'd be familiar. There's a coach that used to work in pro rugby in London and he kind of took that to the next extreme and had issues with, you know, attempting suicide, depression, and he got out of the game. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not that bad, but mate, this, how the, how the job is sometimes just does not necessarily make for a happy person and it becomes even more amplified when you're on the road 40 weeks a year uh living out of a hotel um you know like this this job does not do well for having a missus um, <laughs> so there, there's a price to be paid there's mm. a price to be paid for that quality and sometimes the guys that are a little bit less obsessive in trying to prove people wrong and and, and push their agenda, uh, I would say probably a bit happier and have a bit more of a work-life balance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where do you think, so like, we'll touch on some of those experiences that you've had of obviously coaching overseas in, in different countries, but where that, where do you think that the balance of, of from what you term, relentlessness steps into dodgy water? probably not going to know until it bites you in the ass yeah um you know not not to get too fucking personal about it but yeah of course when i decisions that i had made around my time in sydney roosters the opportunity that i was offered to become the head strength coach for the nrl team after being there two weeks arriving to do the 20s that opportunity was made available to me and on, on, on the surface you look at the, the kind of scenario around that job and you say mm, probably not going to be the best opportunity here but because I had it in my head I, I, I've told you this when I entered the, the field I said right 30 years old I'm going to be a head strength conditioning coach in the premiership level 
Yeah. I was 28. And I was like, right, two years ahead of schedule. I said, yeah, I'll do it. I'll make it work. Didn't work out. Mm. Which was obviously tough. And we've, we've talked at length about that. And then when I resigned from that position, I was so concerned with how I would be perceived by others for being on the surface of failure in that job and defining myself by my achievements as a coach or you know some kind of external marker that I then accepted the job back with Argentina until the end of the World Cup uh, one or two days later and because I was so anxious to make that decision that was a decision that I made without even speaking to my girlfriend at the time which yeah. as you know <laughs> was the beginning of the end <laughs> and um, yeah I mean that's that's probably an example of letting that that mindset um, making decisions that caught you know caused some difficulty in my life but had I not made those decisions I wouldn't have gone to the World Cup I wouldn't have rightly or wrongly got some reflected glory from the way that the boys played I wouldn't be in the position that I am now so I'm, I'm not one to to dwell much on it and say oh I should have done this or I should have done that but it's, you know, it's definitely an example of how that mindset can cause problems yeah yeah it's almost as if like, like your ego um, or anyone's ego is the one that, that drives you to, to get to those sort of levels that you, you want to but then it forces you to make sometimes misinformed decisions it sort of plays against you. Uh, mate, it's, Would it's you agree? Goalposts as well. Like, honestly, like I, when when I was applying for internships, it took me two years to get an internship because I was I was garbage when I graduated. And I had a, a, you know, I don't know how I did it. Like, I got three interviews right off the bat, all for pro um, pro clubs, one in soccer, one in uh, rugby league, and then one in cricket. Mate, I was doing these interviews and they were asking me questions. And I was like. It's not a good moment to have a light bulb go off, but I was like, fuck, I've never actually coached a group of athletes here. Like, this yeah. is not good. And it took me two years to actually get to the point where I got the internship at Wasps. And I reckon Tappers gave it to me because I was the only one who applied. And that was the third year, <laughs> in, a row that that was the third year in a row that I'd emailed Wasps. Yeah. I, mean, I got there by default and I still had a lot, of, um, a lot of flaws. But then I was like, if I could just get an internship, I would be so happy. And then mm. I got an internship and I was like, well, I'm, I'm fucking dirt poor. Uh, there's two types of interns. Ones who think about quitting and lies. <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, if I could just get any paying job, I would, I, I could be happy. And then I got a paying job and the money was shit. And I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm still poor. Um, it's not a first team job. I want a first team job. So then I didn't get the first team job. I got head of academy costs. I in a day. And um, I was like, well, it's, it's not a first-team job. So I threw my toys out the pram, went on the road to Rotherham, got a first-team job. And then I'd yeah. moved to um, Sydney. Completely by accident, ended up the Pumas. And I was like, well, it's not a permanent contract. And then I got a job running the 20s, complete um, charge of the program, richest rugby league club in the world, uh, living in eastern suburbs of Sydney, Bondi Beach in my back garden. Beautiful. Yeah. And then I was miserable because I, you know, I'd, I'd moved up to this other job, didn't work out how I wanted to be. Then I got back to Argentina, and it was like, you can you can always find someone that, that someone that's wrong. So now I've <laughs> I've not learned. I've just changed my goals. My new goal is to be in the NFL by the time I'm 35. Fair play. So I'm I'm sure if I have if I'm by some dumb luck managed to achieve it, I'm sure I'll be miserable. Then I'll find someone else to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, sh I should probably work on uh, learning how to be more content rather than just moving the goalposts. But it, mate, it's yeah. fucking good for getting stuff done. Yeah, no, too right, too right. The um, so obviously, like you mentioned about working in China, you're out in Japan, you've been over to Argentina, you've had to coach in different languages, and you've had to pick those up. And I'm, you know, I applaud you the fact that you just delivered a seminar in Three. Spanish. Yes. And to Three consulting for a premiership soccer club. So, you know, more power to you, mate. Like I couldn't, I'm dyslexic, so words just don't work for me. So, but talk to me about what it's like going into a, a, an environment where 
you have to communicate to to people just not in the weight room but then in and around the club and building rapports with players in a second language because we've got you know people that come overseas over here and you know they can speak uh, English better than the most British people so talk to me a little bit about that how it made you feel and, and what you had to do to overcome those things sink or swim <laughs> sink or swim like yeah um, I my decision making process like I, I kind of joke like people say oh you know well, how do you how do you make your decisions I tell people I listen to get money by Notorious B.I.G and then I do it anyway and um, you know the reason I'm here is because that the thought of that challenge scares me like I I will make the decision first and people will say, oh, you're not worried about learning another language or you're not worried about being the only foreign person or you're not worried about a new team or you might fail. Like, I'll, I'll decide I'm doing it first and then it will slowly dawn on me when I'm there. Like, uh, Simon Amel used to work with him at London Scottish. I met him at the end of the season I was at Rotherham. We beat them with a bonus point, by the way. Um, he said to me, so what are you doing at the end of the season? I said, I'm going to Sydney. He said, oh, really? What club are you working with? I was like, oh, I'm not with a club. And he went, oh. And then, and then I realized, oh, fuck, I've got no club here. I'm walking away from a, like a growing career in professional rugby. And then same deal when I went to, when I went to China. I was like, really blase about it. Got off the plane and I was like, I am the only white person here. The only person that speaks English. Nobody knows who I am. I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, Wow. And then you, you just get I'm used in to fucking it. China. You, oh, mate, you get used to it, but it's. I think what you have to do is learn that you know, it takes pressure to make a diamond. You are going to develop so much faster yeah. as a coach by putting yourself in situations that scare the fuck out of you because, you, you know, comfort does not force you to grow. And the, the worst, if you fall flat on your face, the worst thing is you'll probably get another shot. You, you and I know there are some terrible, terrible coaches out there that still get jobs. So in the yeah. unlikely event that you fall flat on your face, you get, you get another shot. As long as you're a good person, you'll get another shot. You just dust yourself off and learn from it. No, I've had failures and I'll probably have more. Yeah. No, as long as the success is outweigh the failures, it's, you're probably doing all right. Yeah, no, 100%. 100%. So... You know, when, um, how do you feel about when, say, one of your, so one of the guys like, um, for instance, like when Imhoff uh, pulled that crossover step um, and uh, scored the traffic and then automatically, you know, people will attribute that to your SNC and your coaching and stuff. How, what does that give to you? You are taking a lot from it. It's false. Um, you're, you know, I think it was, uh, it was Darren Roberts said to me. He goes, "Your influence as a coach is like putting your finger in a in a, uh, a glass of water. When the finger's in there, you can see the space that your finger occupies. You know it's there. Everyone can see you there. The moment you take your finger out, it's like you were never there. S and C, like you have to take it with a pinch of salt. Like those guys." are going to be great athletes regardless. Your job as the S&C coach is to support them and get out of their way. And the more willing you are to share in their successes, the more willing you have to be to share in their failures. So two years previously, our opening game against South Africa, we lost 73-10 in uh, Soweto. So... If it was my fault that they won the quarterfinal in the World Cup, it was my fault they lost by that much. Now, yeah. certainly, I had a part in it, but I was new to that team then. I had a small part in it, but you, as an SNC, you really have to keep your your contribution in perspective because there are some terrible programs out there that are associated with excellent teams and vice versa. So, mm. it's nice, but I'm taking it with a pinch of salt. You're never as good as they say you are, and you're probably never as bad as they say you are. Yeah. And I've experienced the, the the negative sides of that here. You know, I've I've you know our conversations. I've made no secret. It's been, I had a difficult year last year, um, and I'm I'm hoping that the data that's coming out now is kind of validating what I've been saying. 
but it, you know it, that perception is maybe still there that I'm not as good as people say I am and uh, you really have to keep it in perspective and, and try and just keep working towards your goals and, and, and really take everything with a pinch of salt to see an elite, elite, elite athlete like that do something to such a degree, not even thinking about it, is incredible to think, wow, I was a part of that. Yeah. It's, it's humbling. It's humbling. And it's not like, oh, look what I did. It's like, wow, I got to be a part of that. I got, I got a front seat to see 23 guys perform at the, the best they will ever perform, probably, in front of the world was watching and we overachieved and we made people proud and that's that's incredible to be a part of yeah i can imagine the um the argentinians are very proud of their rugby aren't they they're proud of everything <laughs> yeah that's true that's true especially their steak yeah oh man incredible yeah no that's that's decent that is decent so do you so flipping the the script a little bit i want to talk about because a lot of, you know, there's constantly books that are trending, you know, start with why, and then obviously Brett's got his new book out now, which is all over social media. Um, I've not read it yet. Huh? Mate, it's going gangbusters, that book. It's, um, it's everywhere. Yeah, and he seems to have got a great following. Um, what, what's the, uh, what was the last book you, you read? Uh, Governing Dynamics of Coaching by James Smith. And then I okay. went out and bought, uh, I've got five books on the go. I'm terrible for this. I've got Legacy, What the Dog Saw, David and Goliath. Those two are by uh, Malcolm Gladwell. I've got Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield. And then I've got one more. I'm still, I've got Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl on my table. Dude, I've, I've got a lot of books on the go. I'm terrible at reading. Yeah. You just um, sort of pick and flick as as you go through, or yeah, mate, my uh, my attention span is not the best. <laughs> yeah, no, same here. Yeah. Same here. Is there um, any any of those books in particular that are really sticking out to you at the moment? Mate, I've, I haven't really got stuck into enough uh, in in any great detail yet. Uh, I would say, yeah. you know, to uh, to give a plug to James, like that that book is uh, a, a serious contribution to the field. Yeah, it's pretty thought-provoking, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And um, that will absolutely, again, like I said, put your your contribution as a, as a strength and conditioning coach into a lot of perspective uh, to the extent that I would like to, but I don't have the balls to do what he's doing, which is to do away with the, the, the title of strength and conditioning coach and kind of, you know, call yourself somebody else, just a sport coach or a sport engineer. Um, yeah. So... I, I wouldn't say it's a game changer for me because you and I have been talking to him for the best part of five years. Uh, yeah. What it was for me was extremely useful in, in clarifying a lot of stuff, organizing how I think and influencing how I approach sport as a whole. And I will say as well, it's you're, uh, the longer you do this, the, the higher the bar gets raised to call something a game changer. I mean, I, yeah. I, I still think it's absolutely essential if you want to develop as a coach to put yourself in a situation at least two or three times a year where you think, I'm out of my depth. Yeah. And yeah, uh, if, if, you, if you don't have those, it's probably been a quiet year. Yeah, no, that's fair play. That is fair play. It, um, so on the, on the subject of um, still books and, and learning from reading, what... Away from S and C, like what's the what's the book that you'd go back to and read again that you have read before? Oh man, um, well I've I've a bit of a habit to overthink things, <laughs> and I, yeah. Well, here's a story from my youth. When I was three years old, I said to my mum, I said, Mum, what happens when we die? Oh no no, what was it? I I said, Where do we come from? So she's like, well, when a man loves a woman very, very much, blah, 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 blah. I said, no, no, where do we come from? Where do humans come from? Where does the world come from? So she got into like evolution, Darwin. And I was like, no, no, but where does the universe come from? And then she got from God and Big Bang and we don't know. And I said, okay, now what happens when you die? And she just goes, well, they put you in the ground. <laughs> 
So I was three years old at that point. And, um, you know, I think it's, uh, you know how people like our parents' generation, the defining moment of their uh, childhood growing up was they can remember where they were when Kennedy got shot. So yeah. Like, for you and me, it was where were you and what were you doing on 9-11? Yeah. So then that, that triggers up all those questions are like, why did those people do what they did? What's the philosophy that underpins it? What's the validity of religion and stuff like that? So, I mean, you know, getting a long way to answer the question, the book that I, I've read many, many times is um, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything by Christopher Hitchens. And um, probably my favorite writer. He's, um, mate, if, if you ever want to be an atheist, he will lay out the, the case against religion in that book extremely eloquently. And even if you're... Uh, you're religious, I'd say, check it out, check out his other stuff because his ability to, to argue a point is, is excellent. And that's my, my mindset that I, I, I think how I am and that I admire in others is logical, rational, break people's arguments down and basically paint them into a corner so they have to agree with me. And, uh, and surprisingly, <laughs> when, when I got assessed by the, um, they got clinical counsellors at um, the Roosters that basically profile each person in the club, talk about personality styles, and yeah, surprise, surprise, like my, my personality style was extremely extrovert, extremely analytical, extremely calculating. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> they give you like this folder. I've never told anyone this, but like they sit you down and they go through the folder. They open up this folder and they said, there's like these like spectrum. So if you're on the left-hand side, it's like non-existent. And if you're on the right-hand side, it's like off the charts high. So mine was <laughs> feelings of self-worth, left-hand side, bottom, desire to self-improve, off the charts on the right, and then like calculating, <laughs> logical, rational arguments, all that stuff. So yeah, who, who'd have guessed? And, um, yeah, that's quite interesting. I, I, like, I like books and arguments and, and stuff like that, like breaking down exactly what it is. That, that makes people tick and that's probably the approach that I would take to, to strength and condition. I think you, you're similar, but we work together, but it's, unless you can precisely define what it is you're trying to do as a coach and define those terms and define the basal constituents of what you're trying to do, you don't know what you're talking about. You think you do, but you don't. Yeah. That's my controversial no, statement. Not, <laughs> no, I think I completely agree. I think, you know, one thing when I was out in um, at the World Athletic Center, which is now Altis, so before anyone says Altis, that's now it was the World Athletic Center. Was the I was there early. <laughs> it was the whack, yeah. And uh, Dan Path, uh, we, we were talking about just general coaching and and stuff, and um, he he always said you need to be able to see what you're looking at, and that stuck with me massively. And I think it's quite transferable across all mediums of coaching and life because, you know, you can only, you, I think for everything you do, you, you, you have to paint a picture for, for what your reality can contain. And if you, if you step that into, into the weight room and it's, it's not just back squat, it's not just deadlift. There's all the underpinnings behind that, which, we, I mean, we've started using the force plates this year with all of our jumps and hamstrings and, and bits and pieces like that. And, and that is providing some that next level of analytical detail, which you completely talk about. And it's, it's changing just by seeing these numbers. It is really changing the way that I'm looking at programming and the way that I'm looking at these people move and having some horrible debates in my head about it. Um, that, off that, that what's, what's the biggest... That thought process is, you know, you're, you're definitely on my side of the fence on this. Olympic lifting. Why? Do people do people yeah. do them because they're the best cost to benefit ratio in the development of certain physical qualities, certain movements, certain velocities in the absence of inherent deceleration? Or do they just do them because that's the way they were taught and that's what the UKSCA says is the optimal way to prepare athletes? Yeah. You, no, I agree. Yeah, and, I mean, you and cannot we... be afraid of where the logic leads you. Yeah, 
well this is the thing like we were pulling numbers out of the out of the force plate data and looking at sort of rfd 100 100 milliseconds and then 250 versus um, maximum force production and you know you've got like a lot of us a lot of our strongest guys the garbage they can't, they can't produce in the relevant velocities. Because it's the, and, the best and you, like produces everything that they have in the time that they have. Yeah, a hundred percent. And we know we know a certain person that you know is ridiculously powerful, um, could you know clean one hundred and forty kegs. Um, mate, doesn't it's forty percent in in a hundred milliseconds of eccentric gravity. And if you look at his if you look at where he is good in terms of his sprinting, if he's going to do you, he's going to do you in the first 10 because that's where the contact times are long enough that he's able to express that force. Once he gets up to top speed, he's, he's going to get caught. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, and that's it's so true. Like, this, with, um, we've had a lot of the pulleys and used the pulleys a lot this season and just seeing the guys mature with that new load, yeah. it's like... In, in my head, I'm thinking, you know, well, you know, what what do we actually need the weight room for with these senior guys? Like realistically, you know, there are these deficits and stuff that you need to pull up, but that's at the bottom of the pyramid. And, and you, no one is going to disagree with you when you say strong enough is strong enough, but you are going to make a lot of people uncomfortable when you say just how little enough is. Yeah, well, that's it, and and like you said, you know, the the best athlete is the one that can use everything in the time that they've got available, and so for me now looking at strength, it's like, well, you know, str- strength is only what you can use. Yeah, it's what you can recruit. It's it it's what that you can call on, as and when you need it in a reactive chaotic environment. Yeah. So if you're if you're waiting to to fucking stand up off a squat, well, you know, you're getting set down. I've got a kid. Was a decathlete, junior. I think he was a junior national junior decathlon champion. But he's got extremely long femurs. I think his best in the 110 hurdles was something like 13 or oh, sorry 14 something, fast. And I would say his back squat is probably 140 at a body weight of around 90 kilos. But his peak power, his peak velocity. With a 60 kilo jump squat, he's hitting like 2.5 meters a second. Like he's a half a meter above everyone else. So, and guess who's the best at the jumps and guess who's the best at the sprints in the squad? Yeah, now, there you go. Not to call out a name, Mike Stone's research, all the American coaches should say, well, we need to keep pushing this guy until he's at a double bodyweight squat. Or. You know, maybe maybe he's like we need to make him more of what he is and actually concentrate on the stuff where he's expressing, where he's outperforming everyone head and shoulders. Yeah, well, hundred percent. Because where this this guy that you talk about, like, when where's he going to get hurt? When's he going to get hurt? Because if you if you work back from that question, you know, a double body weight back squat could probably end up hurting him. Because yeah. it's taken him away from his maverick. Well, and he's, he's a winger as well, so he, he's probably going to get a non-contact injury in some kind of sprint or change of direction. And if you look at you know the mechanical characteristics yeah. of uh, those injuries versus the characteristics of a, a maximal back squat, there's not a huge degree of transfer there. So I, I think you, you do have to take those findings with a pinch of salt and say, well, maybe you're seeing... A relationship between maximal strength and performance because the, the the training age is low enough that you would expect to see that transfer. Yeah, and there's there's no coincidence that sort of track and field athletes that come into team sports are excelling from those sort of um, those performance metrics that we look at, just because I I firmly believe that they get the GPP right yeah. and early, and they get and they they do all the right things. And they run, they sprint, they jump, they do their extensive pliers, they do their med balls, and they do them really young. And they're training in so, a fashion that's actually developing quality reps. Because yeah. if you look at 
James DeLacy put it up on his website. There, there's a, a, a paper looking at the sprint characteristics of rugby union versus rugby league. You look at the the mass, the, the general, you know, body mass, strength numbers, general culture of training. Most people's intuition would say, well, they're going to smoke you every time in rugby league versus union because their game is basically run, tackle, wrestle, and that's pretty much it. But the union guys were... We're, we're running faster and my one of the reasons I think that is is because the pattern of the game is less in that middle re- region which doesn't help speed development and I would say they're, they're probably getting yeah. I mean most speed training rugby is garbage anyway but I'd say the, the, the pattern of activity in the game allows them to develop more speed and when you, when you take that to the extreme yeah. and you develop those maximal outputs in track and field you've got a hell of a base to to then translate into, into any team sport and that's the lesson that USA Sevens have learned about five years ago, and they've they've reaped the rewards. Yeah, that's it. So, you know, you're spot on there. You are spot on there. The um, do you find like when working, and you sort of find it, you get a few difficulties with players and and coaches alike to to change that sort of perception of strength. Hell yeah. And the worst athlete you can deal with is the one that trains like a dickhead but has experienced a lot of success in their career. Because yeah, in their mind, everything they did is the reason why they were successful. And uh, it, it can be upsetting <laughs> to be told most of what you've done for the last decade has been a poor use of time in my opinion here's the reasons why here's the research that supports it and the only argument you're getting back is well you know uh, this championship winning team don't train like that you're saying they're wrong you say well yeah I am <laughs> so the, you know, yeah. again like I said yeah. it's, it's how you deliver that message but the the numbers speak for themselves so you, you can tell me well, New Zealand do Olympic lifting, South Africa do Olympic lifting. Are you saying they're wrong? Well, mate, the, the day the day that we beat South Africa in Durban and we put 40 points in them, I said, oh, am I suddenly right now? Or was the argument valid all along? You know, if, if we yeah. have our vertical jumps here, I, I put up on Instagram the other day, we had 16 personal bests out of 25 uh, in week the week before preseason starts. Broke the club record three times in one year. Um now we actually did away with Olympic lifting last year and they were an Olympic lifting team before so hopefully the numbers speak louder than than, than I can, can say in, in defence of simpler exercises you know, numbers numbers talk yeah. what you've got to do is, is get them to play ball long enough that the numbers end up coming out in your favour because if they fight you tooth and nail at every step you're never going to get the buy-in to actually to create those changes in the numbers so there is you do have to, to, to give and take a little bit. I, you know, At one extreme, you've got the perfect program, which the athlete is probably going to find incredibly boring. They won't necessarily believe in, but it's highly, highly effective. And then at the other side of the spectrum, you've got pure entertainment, completely ineffective. But they love to do it. Um, I'll, I'll let you think, I'll let you guess what end of the spectrum I would say most of Japanese rugby operates at. Uh it's our job to try and pull it to the other side, but not to the extent that you lose the boys. Yeah. So, so how do you sort of, how do you go about that? Cause you know, I've, I've had certain instances where, you know, for me, I'll, I'll let them do the stuff that's not going to interfere with what I need out of them the most. Uh, that's it. So, you know, the, the, the key driver of speed, strength, and power development is the CNS. Multipliers of CNS fatigue are force and velocity. So if you're going to give them something to, to steal a phrase from a coach I spoke to over here, tickle their balls, you're going to give them something that has no force, no velocity, and a low amount of musculature. So basically we're talking about single joint bodybuilding yeah. stuff for the upper body. And that is the sugar that helps the medicine go down. Um, I, I would try and stay away from allowing them to do extra glycolytic conditioning, extra leg weights, all that kind of stuff, because then that does start to have um, have an impact on what you're trying to do. And the th- a thing that we used to do with Argentina was we would have on a on a low day we did 
basically anything that we weren't hitting on the high days, which was uh, single joint, upper body, uh, kind of pump stuff, rehab, prehab, any kind of frontal plane, lower body, if we, if we felt it was necessary. We would define the categories of exercises and then let them select to trick them into thinking they were in charge of the program so that we got less fight back on the high days. And uh, the, the, the culture that we had uh, in Argentina by the end of those three years, you know, it, it was a, a pretty seamless culture. So yeah. It, it helped. What do you think? So, because you said you mentioned there like three years of, of in the making. Like what, what do you think, you know, you get guys in America that have been at clubs for like 10 years, S&C coaches and stuff like that. Like what do you, what do you think or from the people that you spoke to is the best time to spend with the club? Would you be a lifer somewhere now or what would you, what would you consider? It doesn't, it doesn't fit my, my personality. Um, yeah. To, to go back to what Tapper said about the, the thing that makes you would destroy you. Um, if you uh, club hop from team to team, it can certainly colour people's perception of you. And I won't mention his name, but someone interviewed me for a super rugby job, and he said, "Why is it whenever you don't get your way, you leave a team?" And I think he was just trying to—he was just trying to rattle me to ask me a difficult question, and I—I answered—I I reframed it and answered the question. But certainly, people can have that perception. If you're always moving, you don't actually develop the depth of relationship that allows you to get to the really, really good stuff. Uh, you aren't yeah. you aren't building long term. You know, you and I went to Ulster and the stuff that they were doing with their GPS, with their sports science and with certain aspects of their program, you need half a decade to actually get to that point that you can do it. It's like putting on clothing. Like if yeah. you're gonna wear a fancy tie or a fancy hat, you better have your pants, your socks, your trousers on first. Otherwise you're naked, you look like a dickhead. So yeah. If you if you constantly move, you never actually get to that point where you you're really making a long term improvement. You're getting to the the edge and you're pushing yourself as a coach because otherwise you're just setting up. Like I think as Buddy Morris said, he goes the first year, you, you're literally just setting out your stool. And if you get any gains, it's just because you're new. Um, yeah. The the flip side is, if you spend <coughs> 10, 15, 20 years, you. I my I don't know. My guess is you get lazy, and you don't get challenged, yeah. and you're. Uh, I mean, those are the two biggest things. But then, obviously, you're able to you're able to collect a huge amount of data on the same group. You're able to push your work, and unquestionably, the depth of relationship that you have with people around you is. I mean, you. The longest I've been with the team is three years, and. I will be friends for life with those Argentinian guys. Like I went back over there in, in January, yeah. went out to dinner with the the physio and his 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 wife and his kids. Went to the doctor's house, catching up with S and C coaches. You know those those are relationships that I have for life. So I can only imagine how how fulfilling that must be for everyone involved if it if it goes well. If you if you're there for ten plus you know twenty years, but I think you. If you are in that situation, you definitely need to be putting yourself in, in other situations that stress you and make you uncomfortable. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think from like just thinking of some people off the top of my head, a lot of them are associated with academic institutions as well. Yeah. So they're like doing researching and and those those bits and pieces. And it brings me on to an interesting point about the conversation that you have with Milan on your podcast and um, talking about potential PhDs and, and, and bits and pieces since then have you given that any any more thought I have um, I mean it's it's maybe getting to the point now <clears throat> where to be at the, the very 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 elite level you are going to need a PhD just because the amount of data management that goes on the depth of knowledge that you need is necessary um, and when I talk about the very, very elite level, like I'm, I'm talking about the big four in America, um, or, or maybe like a directorship at an Olympic Institute or something like that. Um, definitely in team sports, I think you can get to the elite level. You can do really, really well with a, ba a bachelor's or a master's. Um, but I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons that I'd want to do it. The other reason would be just because intellectually it, it interests me. 
Um, yeah. I, I, I have questions in my head about the athletes that I work with or hunches that I have about certain things in, in the research that nobody has answered yet. And it, the likelihood is I'm going to have to probably try and answer those questions for myself. And then lastly, um, I want people to call me doctor. <laughs> yeah, too right. <laughs> Definitely. Including my missus. Definitely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if your monthly checkup. Yeah. Um, I, I think you mean doctor, dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, outstanding. That's brilliant. The um, no, that is very, very interesting. I think, yeah, for for me, it is, you know, a to be called doctor would be pretty cool. Um, but yeah, also the big part of it is uh, to prove a point on on something or other, just to be right. Mate, you get you getting back to that? Well, yeah. <laughs> That's that's um, one thing is like. Well, here's here's the thing. From I'm gonna tie it in here. Christopher Hitchens from uh, God is not great. How religion poisons everything. He said you will not believe what things you can say in life if you just have the title of reverend attached to your name. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. The the degree to which certain people in the field are not questioned or challenged because they have the word doctor attached to their name. Yeah. Um, and I, I think sometimes people have the perception of me that I, that I, uh, some statements I make in public that I'm anti-science. Um, though people who have worked with me sometimes accuse me of being too scientific. Um, but I think, you there are occasions when the research may say one thing but the reality that we quote unquote know to be true from elite level training is quite different and i think there are there are certain flaws within research that lead people to make those conclusions like the length of the study studying things in isolation um the population being studied and, and so on and that, those are frequent examples of why I don't like maths uh, that I've, I've written about. And if you, if you really, really dig down and ask people, why do you do maths? People will say, because Dan Baker does it. Yeah. And you've you, you, you got to dig down deeper than that. Now, maths works, but does it work best? And the, the criteria that I would like people to adopt... If you read um, Bad Science or, or um, I think it's Bad Pharma by Ben Goldacre, he says all these medicines get produced by Big Pharma and the studies backing them up say, oh, this medicine works better than nothing or this medicine works better than a placebo. Well, I'm not interested in if it works. I'm interested in if it works than the best thing we currently have available that's going to change best practice. So I'm, I don't care if mass works because everything works, especially when you're new to training. I care, does it work better than everything else we have available? And the conclusion I've come How to... How efficient is it? Yeah, the conclusion I've come to is no. And it makes me a little bit unpopular. <laughs> yeah, oh, mate, like, life's too short to really care what people think about you, though. So I'm told. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, listen, we've been on, on the air for nearly an hour, so I know you're quite busy as well. So, um... And just a, just a couple of things that I think might be quite interesting is um, there's two questions that I want to ask you is how would you like to be remembered? And if you could have one superpower, what would that superpower be? How would I like to be remembered? I mean, are we talking coaching or just as a, as a person? Just generally, yeah, just generally. Man, like, I as as a coach, I want to be considered one of the best in the world. Like, and I will, I will keep working. If if it ever happens, I certainly wouldn't believe people when they said it, and I I would not stop and think, oh, I've, I've achieved it. But I would, I would be 
you know, for my ego and the fact that I'm, I'm keep pushing, keep improving. I think whatever you do, I, I have a lot of admiration for people who do stuff and they want to be absolutely the best at it. And I would, I would love to be considered one of the best in the yeah. world. Whether, whether I'll achieve it, I don't know. Um, but you, you can be, uh, you can be a really, really good coach and be an absolute fucking prick to work with and a, a bad person as well. So hopefully if I can do that and, uh, have, have people say wherever I went, I made a, I made a positive difference and I think it's self-serving, but if I think if you, if you've got guys that you work with calling you up five years later to ask how you are, ask for advice, have lunch, stuff like that. I think you, you, you're on the right track. Um, yeah, there, there are athletes I can say that about and there are athletes that I can't say that about and then maybe that gives me clues about how that relationship was but you know there are, there are certain boys that I've worked you know that you've worked with as well you know when I'm back in town I'll, I'll ring them up and go, go have lunch with them and stuff like that so I think I'd, I'd like to, to strike a balance between the two I don't want to be everyone's best mate and be a shit coach but I don't want to be the world's best coach and everyone think I'm a prick <laughs> and then what was it as yeah. a superpower yeah that's yeah come on get something out there Wow, man, I'll, I'll go for Wolverine from X-Men because I'm I'm friggin' blew my back out yesterday and I've been walking like a cripple ever since. Normally it takes me uh, 20 minutes to walk to work. It took me 45 minutes this morning. <laughs> just sh- shuffling like after my first night in a jail cell. <laughs> oh, I'm just out there. Oh. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the struggle bus. Thanks. Uh, fair play, man. Uh, just quickly then, before we before we go, um, what are your social media handles? Um, I know you produce some great content, so I want to put some people onto that. Just uh, Google Rugby Strength Coach, and I'll be the one that pops up. Perfect. Love that SEO, huh? Wow, you know, mate. You know the best SEO. The best SEO is content. <laughs> yeah, too right. No, definitely too right. Well, as so, well, we um, have yeah. a name like uh, Keir Wenham Flat. Yeah, <laughs> oh, sounds good. All right, so yeah, um, we'll wrap that up there. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, episode one, Sports Talks, People Behind the Post. I am Sam Portland with the rugby strength coach, Kieran Flat. Uh, thank you very much, and we'll speak to you next time.